Hi, and welcome to The Student Sums It Up. My name is Sam, and every week I sit down with our writers to bring you updates on Amherst's latest news. Today, May 4th, we'll talk about the most recent development in a 50-year movement to establish an Asian Pacific American Studies Department on campus. We'll also talk about the recent wage raise for college employees and what it reveals about labor dynamics at the institution. Thanks for tuning in. The beginning of May marks the start of Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. At Amherst, the movement to establish an Asian American Studies Department has been intensifying in recent years, particularly since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic and concomitantly the increasing visibility of anti-Asian hate across the country. The movement is led in large part by the Asian American Alumni Network and the Asian Pacific American Action Committee. And along with their broader calls for the formation of a department, they have consistently advocated for the hiring of tenure-track faculty who specialize in fields related to Asian Pacific American studies. This week, staff news writer Mina Anyati Uzeta reported on the approval of a cluster hire that will bring three new APA studies professors to the college. And staff news writer Karina Maciel will help us to put this cluster hire in the context of a 50-year fight for recognition among APA studies activists at the college. Stay tuned for all of this after the break. For members of the Amherst community laboring to establish an APA studies department, this cluster hire marks a moment of tentative optimism. Last week, the college's Committee on Educational Policy approved a proposal to hire three full-time faculty members, each of whom specializes in APA studies and would join the English, Economics, and Psychology departments. The CEP is a rotating group of five faculty members and three students who, among other things, pass along hiring recommendations to President Biddy Martin and Provost Catherine Epstein. Senior Cole Graber-Mitchell, who has been a member of the CEP for three years, told us that hiring recommendations are often approved once they pass through the CEP. The significance of this cluster hire lies in the fact that the CEP is allocated only a limited number of hiring recommendations each year. The fact that the CEP chose to commit three recommendations to a single field demonstrates a notable level of commitment to strengthening APA studies on campus. These three faculty will join a group of five other APA studies professors housed in various departments across the college. Professor of American Studies Franklin Odo expressed excitement about the growing community of APA scholars on campus, saying that having seven or eight faculty members rather than one will obviously result in a huge increase in the number of people that can choose to develop a senior thesis or capstone or take a course involving APA studies. Another important aspect of this expansion is that it will send APA scholars to the economics and psychology departments in which APA studies are underrepresented. Student APA studies activist Zha Zha Zhang said, When I first came here as a freshman, if you wanted to study South Asian Americans or Southeast Asian Americans, or study it from a psych approach or econ approach, or just anything other than history or English, it would have been impossible to do. This is a really powerful moment. 
Even though this cluster hire is a big accomplishment for their movement, students and faculty stress that it is just one step forward in the prolonged fight for an official department. Zhang emphasized that because the APA studies professors all inhabit disparate departments, it is perpetually difficult to create and maintain a sense of scholarly community. APA studies scholar in the Sexuality, Women's, and Gender Studies Department, Christine Peralta, echoed this sentiment, saying that this community can only flourish to a certain point in the absence of formal institutional support. And this is not a new realization, but rather something that APA studies activists have recognized for 50 years. Karina Maciel will tell us about that history after the break. Karina did extensive archival research and interviewed the movement's contemporary actors to put the activism in context. And what you found is that the fight for an Asian American studies department at the college has been going on for 50 years in the face of this really deeply rooted assumption in academia that this field of study lacks value. So yeah, I'm really excited to talk about the work you did in the archives and the interviews that you did. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I want to start just by asking you what inspired you to uncover this story. I took intro to Asian American history, Mm -hmm. 1800 or 1850 to the present last semester Mm -hmm. with Professor Peralta. And one of the projects that we did for that class was we did an oral history interview with an alumni. And my I interviewed... um, Shoyang Shin, who graduated 2019, mm-hmm. and she was one of the like original, or like she played a big role in reviving like the activism mm-hmm. for this for Asian American studies at Amherst. And she talked about that um, in the oral history interview, and that kind of had me like thinking about that. Mm-hmm. There were some other things in that course that kind of had me thinking about Asian American studies or APA studies in general on campus. Like I had to write a paper about the third world liberation movement, mm-hmm. which was basically like the original call for ethnic studies um, back in California on and schools in California in like the 60s and the 70s. Mm-hmm. There's just like so much there that nobody talks about because we're reading all the news about you know, how this movement is really accelerating now with the cluster hire that was just approved. And it's been a very visible movement for the past year or so. But it isn't new. Like this has been, this is a long, long battle. And so, yeah, it's really cool that you wrote a little bit about that. So the first calls for an Asian American studies department were made in a 1972 letter to the editor um, in the Amherst Student, and it was written by Asian and Asian American students at the college. Could you explain what this letter said and the context in which it was written? Um, Yeah, so basically the letter was written in May 1972, And basically, these um, Asian, Asian American students are kind of like calling on administration. Mm -hmm. And I think their fellow students as well asking for a curriculum that kind of studies their own histories. Yeah. And I think the the letters published around the time like that there were just increasing calls for like ethnic studies in general. Yeah. Like students of color at campuses all over the place kind of wanted the ability to focus on their own stories in ways that hadn't been done before. How similar were the arguments they were making to the arguments that people are still making today? Both, like, then and now, 
Asian American studies, APA studies are being demanded because people want to like, they want to find belonging. Yeah. And not even find belonging, like I guess to be more specific, they kind of want to have, like want the opportunity to like critically look at things. Yeah. So like whether it's like their own histories, like their own cultures, like contextualizing that within the greater history of the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And APA studies provides a really, really good like vehicle to do that. Yeah. Um, For sure. And then also, like, once you kind of have that framework, it provides opportunity to, like, expand further. I spoke with Professor Franklin Odo. Odo has actually been involved with APA studies since its conceptualization back in the 60s. He's like, he's a really big deal. He said, when we started Asian American studies back in the late 60s and 70s, one of the features of our advocacy was to point out that these fields were needed precisely because the academy was not addressing these issues. Mm. Our colleagues did not always take very kindly to that because this was direct criticism of the fact that the university faculty were not addressing issues that were critical. And people still haven't gotten the message. Not all of our colleagues are convinced that this is a legitimate field and is providing both methodologies and content we need to become fully educated. Um, So after that letter to the editor, um, I know that shortly afterwards in 1980, the college began offering its first ever Asian American studies courses. They were taught by professor, now professor emeritus Barry O'Connell of the English department. Um, There was no structural change until the turn of the 21st century when the five college consortium established the APA certificate in 2000. So could you tell us the story behind the creation of that five college program? It was, I think, established in part due to efforts from someone from Mount Holyoke, I want to say. I think his name was Floyd Chung. And but Amherst didn't join originally. It wasn't until five years later mm. that they joined. I'm not sure why that is still like being uncovered, I think, because yeah. the what the what the alumni network is doing in conjunction with the APAC is they're kind of they're going back and they're doing even more extensive research. And they're like trying to build a proper timeline, yeah. like decade by decade. Wow. In 2015, 2015 was a big year in terms of the college's reckoning with diversity and inequity, given that it was the year of the Amherst uprising. What happened in 2015 in terms of uh, the movement for an APA studies department? Yeah, so I think the Amherst uprising was really critical. I mean, the activism had already been there, but kind of like doing another push for it. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking with some alumni who are now like members of the AAAN, um, they said that the Amherst Uprising played a really big role in kind of allowing Asian and Asian American students on campus to like think critically mm-hmm. about why there was no space for them to talk about their issues, about like how such a space could be created. Um, they said that the Asian Students Association, the ASA, was revived that year. Mm. Um, it hadn't existed like all those years prior. And so I guess the Amherst Uprising was kind of the catalyst for like this push to be like reignited. After the movement kind of reconsolidated in 2015, what has been happening since then? Um, and what, what is happening right now? Yeah, so in 2018, the Asian American Studies Working Group was created. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would they would later change their name to APAC. Mm-hmm. They were working with Professor Odo, um, who had been hired as visiting faculty following the uprising. And I know one of the big things they did was they did this photo campaign. It was called What Amherst Doesn't Teach Me. And I know like one photo is like, it says like, 
they don't teach me about like Chinese exclusion mm-hmm. or like other topics relating to Asian American history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that advocacy campaign was kind of a big deal. And then following that, you have the hiring of Professor Pawan Dingra. I spoke to Jaja who's a senior this year, and she was kind of talking about just, like, the extensive, extensive advocacy that APAC had to do to get um, Dingra hired and then to get Professor Peralta hired, who mm-hmm. came to the who came to the college last fall. Mm. Um, and she said that they put in, like, multiple hiring requests, and, like, they went to departments, pitched departments about why their department should request Asian Americanist professors, they did all of that, like, so much unpaid labor mm-hmm. that they really shouldn't have had to do. Yeah. Um, And their first request got denied. And so she said that was, like... What was the reasoning behind it? Do you know? Uh, I think... Based, I think... She didn't tell me who, but there was one professor on the Committee of Educational Policy who was just so, like, violently against hiring, like, an Asian Americanist professor, which I think stems kind of from the idea that the field is not important. Yes. People are like, oh, Asian-American studies. Why don't we have, like, Italian-American studies? Yeah. Or, like, stuff like that. And I think that's kind of ignoring the really critical methodologies and, like, aspects that APA studies can provide. Yeah. Examining the experiences of Asian-Americans and Pacific Islanders in the United States and then also, like, larger, like, looking at larger structures like racism, Mm -hmm. um... And just, like, inequality in general. Yeah. And people don't realize that. Mm -hmm. And so that was why it got denied the first time. The second time, that's the one, that's the push that eventually led to the hiring of Professor Peralta. Mm -hmm. My final question is very broad. Um, What impact do you hope this story will have on the Amherst community and the current fight for the department? I think that I would like people to read this article become aware and kind of give credit where credit is due and then also help to push for this program of study. There are the the APAC and the AAAN in particular were they really want their like names to get out there. Yeah. So people can know about them. Yeah. Um and then also like considering the cluster hire. Yeah. Because these professors are coming and the hiring process is supposed to start next fall. Um and with the goal of having them here by fall 2024. In between now and then, I kind of hope this article, like, gives students and whoever, like, the context they need to kind of continue to advocate and continue to push. Because now, between now and fall 2024 is a long time. It's important to keep momentum going or it'll be another 50 years before we see any real change. Thank you, Karina. Since fall 2021, the news team has been following the story of labor at the college from the staffing shortage in the wake of the COVID-19 lockdowns to the untold story of unbenefited casual employees. Now, managing news editor Kaylin McQuilkin is here to explain to us the significance of the wage increase that went into effect on April 1st, 2022. This wage increase affects the earnings of all college employees, including casual and student workers. Hi, Kaylin. Hello. Thanks for having me. First, I want to review just the logistics and the numbers of this wage increase. Um, And all of this is listed in an email that the college sent to everyone in the community. And it's also found on the Amherst website. Um, I'll put the link to that in the episode description. Um, But Kaylin, 
was this wage increase uniform across um, the earnings of all employees? Yeah, so the pay increase was graded based on the types of earnings that different types of employees make at the Mm -hmm. college. So for all employees making under $50,000, they received a $1 per hour increase. Um, And then going up on incomes, it was a slightly less per hour increase. So for example, employees making between $5,000 and $59,000 received an 80 cent per hour increase Mm. and then so on from there. And I know that you got a chance to speak with some of the employees affected by this change. Um, What were the reactions in general? Did people feel like this was you know, a significant raise that would make a difference for them? Or did they feel like it was a little bit more insignificant? Yeah, I think the overall sense that I got from speaking with three different, well, really four different employees who preferred to remain anonymous was that, of course, everyone was glad that this dollar wage raise did increase. Um, But I think it really just led to larger, broader reflections about the ways in which the college goes about giving raises to its employees. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of employees, for example, one employee reflected that um, they said, speaking of the raise in March, I'd have to say it barely makes an effect. In my opinion, the fact it was offered is a clear indication that they know the wages are below standard mm-hmm. and did little to adjust pay to current conditions. So it led to a lot of reflection about the re- recent inflation that's been going on. Um And then also sort of bigger issues in the structure of pay. Like one employee, the same employee brought up how the differential between the night shift and the day shift is 90 cents. And so they said, I don't know anyone who would actively choose nights over days for an additional $37 a week before taxes. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was sort of one thing that came up. Um, Another employee said that I don't think I think we'll keep struggling to hire and keep employees until a massive pay attitude correction occurs. Mm -hmm. Um, Other employees shared thoughts about the fact that a lot of other corporations like Target and Panera are offering employees big wage or big wage raises and like the starting pay is much higher. But they just said uh, corporations like Target and Panera have altered their perspective on employees, um, starting all new employees at 20 to $24 an hour at Target and $20 an hour at Panera. You were mentioning uh, the effect of the pandemic on all of these sort of uh, wage raises and broader like labor reforms um, that we've been seeing across the country. And I think the pandemic really did bring, you know, a it's certainly like an ideological reckoning with like, okay, how do we view labor in this country and what are we going to do to, um, you know, demonstrate our respect for the, the labor that these people are doing. And then now, like, even though COVID is a little, the pandemic itself is a little more in the background, we're feeling the economic effects. It's all of these um, factors like compounding together um, that really forces to have a reckoning with, okay, what is a living wage? So among these people you talked to, did any of them have an idea of what wage raise or, you know, other benefit could have possibly made more of a difference um, for them? Yeah, I think people generally felt the general sense that I, that I could interpret from the different interviews that I got is that people felt like the wage raises should be something that happens consistently and is something that is planned out in um uh in sorry I'm like blinking on the word no, like you're okay. planned out using the thoughts and opinions of employees themselves like a collaborative like yes, in effort to determine what a good wage is yeah. yes yeah and so they they talked about sort of one employee who actually stopped working in the dining hall as of last fall, talked about how 
at least in the past, there would be times when the administration would be giving everybody the wage that they said was the cost of living in the area, but there's only an allotted amount of raises that can be given out per department, and that was subjective to management. So it seems like there's an overall sense that part of the reason why employees aren't fully satisfied with this change is because it's something that ultimately is in the hands of management and not what employees ex- are expressing their needs to be. Yeah. Um, so that definitely seemed sort of like a, a bigger idea. And, and then also, I think you have such a good point about sort of what the pandemic made us see and stuff. And another quote that stood out to me from one employee is where they said, unlike a small mom and pop restaurant looking to survive the bottom line, Valentine Hall and Amherst have the means and ability to properly care for its workers and actively chooses not to, which is very disheartening. Mm-hmm. So I think that's sort of another ideological shift is people understanding more the significance of the endowment and the money that Amherst has and the the harm that is actively caused in the places where the administration and management chooses not to use it. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else you want to talk about that I haven't asked about? Like in talking about the reporting and writing process, mm-hmm. it's been over the time, like years or over the year that I've been working on this reporting, I used to just go into Val and talk to employees. Mm-hmm. And now people are just too concerned about speaking in Val because they're worried about management. And so this time, like every article, it's felt like the writing and reporting process has changed to becoming more and more sort of like un- covert, like, like yeah. more high stakes. Exactly. Yeah. And so this time I actually just like received three like really long typed up emails and then had one phone call with an employee Mm. and the emails were like fake created emails that these employees made to send to me yeah and so I think that's just a really have any of them talked explicitly about experiences that they've had with management maybe verbally retaliating for what they've been saying in these articles or is it just a general sense of like unease with um with sharing their experience. Yeah, I know that in the past articles, like last fall, there mm-hmm. was not, I mean, there wasn't a direct retaliation because everyone was anonymous, but there was definitely a heightened sense of like discontent and frustration from management. And so I think that definitely mm-hmm. made employees more concerned about speaking out. Um, and then I also just know, I think that this sort of like leads into a bigger conversation, which is outside the scope of the article, but I still think interesting just about the like workplace environment mm-hmm. in Val. Like just the fact that that so many people continually said like, I would prefer to remain anonymous because yeah. there will be retaliation or like people who just said like, we're scared of management. Yeah, that's why just- I asked the question because I want to know like, and I think that yeah. is a really good story that maybe you could bring to us sometime yeah. in the future. I, um, I think so too. Yeah, because that raises a lot of questions about what the working environment is like there um, yeah. and what the relationships and the dynamics between management and employees look like. So yeah, I totally think so. Well, thank you, Kaylin. Yeah, thank you. Special thanks to the news team, including Kaylin McQuilkin, Tana Delalio, Sonia Shajet-Wides, Eleanor Walsh, and Lynn Lee. Thank you also to our audio engineer, Sebastian Sun. Once again, I'm Sam, and I'll see you next week on The Student Sums It Up.